Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 223 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with John Powers, co-founder of Clean Capital, former managing director of the public sector business development at Bloom Energy. John is also a former federal chief sustainability officer at the White House Council on Environmental Quality in Barack Obama's White House. He's a former special advisor for energy to the assistant secretary of the United States Army. John is a former chief operating officer of the Truman National Security Project and a former Democratic candidate for Congress in New York's 26th district in the western portion of the state. He's a former captain in the United States Army, a former elementary and high school teacher, and John is the founder of Work Kids Relief. John, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Appreciate first question, it. you're welcome. The first question I'd like to pose to you, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Yeah, it's a good question. I think my entire career has been in public service. When I left college, uh, I did ROTC in college, joined the Army right after, right after obviously, because that's what you're required to do. Uh, and, you know, that entered me for my first time really into the public service space. And I sort of became a mission-oriented person because of that and have driven now my career in that sector, first in national security, which led to clean energy, which right. is the space I'm into. A lot of stuff began with the military. Why did you even have an interest in ROTC to begin with? So, mind you, this is pre-9-11, mm-hmm. right? And I th- sort of grew up in a, you know, a community where I was very active in the community, was in scouts and, and you know, an altar boy and all the, the sort of key things you do when you grow up. My dad did ROTC, was in the Army, suggested I signed up for a scholarship, and I got a scholarship coming out of high school. I went to John Carroll University and was spent four years in the Interesting. ROTC Can I stop program. you there? You got a scholarship to go to college. See, a lot of people join ROTC because it helps defer the price of admissions to school, but you already had tuition taken care of, yet you still joined ROTC. Why? It was, it was a ROTC scholarship. Oh, I see. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't sound too grandiose. There was, that was an ROTC scholarship. Okay, so. okay. So you were doing the ROTC, the ROTC thing, and then you end up going in the Army. You work your way up to captain? I did, yeah. And you yeah. considered going making a career of it, or not really? You know, I was never... Uh, that's a good question. I was never probably a career person to begin with, and then I was, but I was in, I was stationed overseas when nine eleven happened, which obviously where were you? Was in Germany. How'd you find out? I was actually heading home because it was the afternoon over there to take a bike ride, uh, and a buddy of mine called up. And we, at first, thought he was joking because this is remember really pre social media, pre cell phones for right. the most part. Um, and um, you had a cell phone, you're saying? I had a cell phone, but basically one of those big old cell phones. Because you were on a on a bike. No, I was I was going home to get my bike. Oh, okay. and my my uh, one of my best friends called me up and said, "Hey, you got to get back here to know, the base. To the base. Two planes just hit the twin towers, and you know, for the, I was sort of calling BS. I'm like, that's terrible. Why would you say that? And he's like, No, it's real. Get back here. And then he, my buddy Ted and I, volunteered to be the first officers in charge that night of the base. We locked the base down. No one really knew what was going to happen, right? I mean, it was sort of a a surreal experience. Actually, I remember that evening, we were watching CNN on the only TV, I think, on the base. And I got to see my first video conference when you had the general of the, the division video conferencing to all the bases. And I was like, well, this technology actually exists. This is very fascinating. 
So what was the response both from the U.S. Army in Europe but also from the European community while you were there? Yeah, so the response from the community was overwhelming. I mean, it had flowers at our bases. Uh, you know, we lived in the community as young single officers, so we lived in apartment houses when most of the soldiers themselves lived on the you had uniforms? And, yeah. So uniform. people knew that you were a part? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we were not in a very big military community, so there was big ones over there like Kaiserslautern and uh, or La- Yorkshire Lansul. Um, those are huge 40,000-person communities. We had better part of a thousand people in a college town called okay. Eason. So we had a lot of German friends. I played on a German rugby team. Now, I'll come back to this, but the reaction post on 11 was significantly different than the reaction when we came back from Iraq, uh, so from our deployment. So, so you the, were deployed from Germany to Iraq after, in response to this? In uh, response to 9-11? Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. It was part of the original... So what was the post. difference there? And what would you attribute it to? Um, well, 9-11, right, was an attack on the U.S. I think people were shocked by it. There was a, a wonderful international reaction to it. Um, you know, we still had the you know moral high ground as a nation from a leading perspective. And, you know, I won't give the tactics of the base, but we were pretty intimate with the community, right? We had a lot of German friends. Um, when we deployed to Iraq, this is post-Afghanistan had been going on now for a year and a half, two years. The invasion of Iraq happened in 2003. We were supposed to, as a unit, go invade from the north, but the Tur- Turkey's Tur- their country wouldn't let us in, the nation of Turkey. Um, so we ended up following the invasion force, and then we spent 15 months there in both Baghdad and Najaf on the ground, which, again, was a significantly life-changing experience. And coming back from that, that was the real deterioration of, you know, th- didn't find weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. The, the, it turned from a... Um, Turned into a disaster, honestly. Uh, and uh, how did your rugby teammates react yeah. to you upon your return? I'll tell you, we we were not allowed back into the pubs that we frequented quite often before we left. Really? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty hostile. Um, they, they saw you as representing what? Uh, it's a great question. I think they saw us as. I think they. The shiny light that we probably you were the same guy. Exactly. You were the same one who they were drinking beer. I would say our friends, our intimate friends, like the rugby guys, didn't blank. The community changed, right? It was it, look when you walk around Germany as an American soldier, you're pretty. You stand out, right? You've got short hair. Most of us spoke very terrible German, you know. So when we sh- when we showed up in groups, right? So you know that that I'll never forget. A team turned away at a bar that we'd spent a lot of time in the pub um, over over. This is literally like the second night being home, and just it was a different attitude. Right? And the reason I'm delving into this is because this yeah. is a public interest podcast, right? Yeah. Why are you making the world a better place? And here you are joining the military, and actually we haven't even got into your motivations for the military <laughs> yet. So I'd like to ask, you know, and then you're going into Iraq supposedly to fight these bad guys who, again, um, you, you know, you had a whole lot of empathy from the world on yeah. behalf of America, which had been victimized. And now um, you find all of a sudden they're very hostile to you and you're trying to make the world a better place. How do you reconcile that? You know, it's actually that engage, that experience, right? Uh, flash forward a few years when you mentioned I ran for Congress. I actually, my wife and I said at the time we weren't going to do it. Weren't going to do uh, what? Run for Congress in 2008. And then I went to Brazil on a trip with her. And uh, this is during the, you know, President Obama sort of coming 
coming to age and like there's you know this grandiose uh, it was a really interesting time to be looking at public service but I felt that same international frustration uh, in South America that I had felt post the Iraq invasion and I was very you mean frustration on the part of the community anti-Americanism because a lot of Americans um, which by the way I think would be Equally, as we're seeing it today in hostile numbers, right, because of the leadership. Because so, a lot of Americans don't actually have passports. Most right. Americans have never left the country. So right. a perspective that you offer, which is how we're actually perceived in the rest of the world. So you're saying there is one sentiment after the 9-11 attacks, another one when Barack Obama got elected. Right. right, and those were kind of similar. And now you're saying that after Iraq, there was a very hostile kind of reaction, and that's what we're seeing now under the Trump administration. You, I guess look at how- pa- the Paris Agreement. Paris Agreement. There's a framework. It's important from from the Paris Agreement on climate change. It is an important document. It's an important guiding stone. What's for me, what's flustered me the most about this whole when Donald Trump pull, pull, announced this week, last week, that we're going to pull out of it. It, we were ceding the high ground and ceding our leadership position, right? I mean, there, there's so much work done by the Obama administration to quarterback 195 nations, you know, uh, to come to the table and agree on a framework. And all of a sudden, he's going to pull out of it. And we, you know, that's about ceding leadership. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing it in the same situation with NATO today, right? We're, we're ceding leadership. And that's unfortunate from you know if you haven't left the united states you may not understand what that means but you know we were and had been and can continue to be you know a shining light for folks um but when we when we take actions like that we're not well now we're talking about the paris agreement let's talk about environmental environmental policy and and climate change so you you were uh, a special advisor on energy to the secretary of the u.s army uh you worked in the obama white house on environmental quality sustainability um, now you're the co-founder of Clean Capital. All of these things seem related to, I guess, uh, climate change and, and, and moving our na- the various nations of the world towards renewable energy. Yeah. Uh, I guess, where is clean energy today? What is your business? What have you been trying to accomplish while in the White House and in the Army? What, what does America need to do, and, and what's our role in the world in, in, in leadership that we're ceding, apparently, yeah. in climate change? So let me tie this back to my time in the military, because it's sort of where my interest got started, and uh, I'll tell you the story of how I got to where I am. Sure. When, uh, when we were deployed, we were based in Uday Hussein's palace in the Tigris River, right? And we were, remember this, the beginning of the war, we had a group of Iraqis who lived in this base, or worked on a base with us every day. And they would oh, leave. Let me just interject for our listeners who don't know. Uday Hussein was the son of Saddam Hussein, who was the president slash dictator of Iraq for a period of time. And this palace, by the way, was the last place he was seen alive before he was captured. Right, so it was a pretty infamous place in the most hostile sector of Baghdad. Um, so we would the workers in the base who we got to know would leave, and we knew they left with intelligence every day. But they specifically, you know, we knew within forty-five minutes to an hour wherever our fuel trucks were would get mortared right mm-hmm. it was just a common practice so we would literally as soon as those workers left move our trucks mm-hmm. and it was my first i sense of the idea of energy security and i'll come back to that um when i got more involved in the national security uh national security policy when i left i was always interested in energy security and then began to understand the, imp- the implications of national security and climate change mm-hmm. which happened when i was at the truman project uh, actually end up testifying to the Senate with, 
a retired Republican senator from Virginia named John Warner uh, and a three-star admiral uh, and, a, and a, um, actually an Exxon lawyer, but that's a different thing. And, and so I became sort of an expert in the space and began writing on what the Defense Department could be doing to help mitigate some of these things, which is more renewables, more energy efficiency. And then I got asked to go in and do it. And so when I took the job at the Army, it was – think about the Army as a giant uh, – Consumer of fuel. That's part of – sure. Um, that's more the Air Force actually than the Army. Um, the Army is a huge landlord, right? More, more square footers than Walmart. You know, a lot of buildings, a lot of campus-wide bases. Hmm. So you can think about what we're doing overseas and the amount of fuel we burn in our Humvees. But here at home, we have, you know, we have 1950s, 1960s barracks. We've got, you know, they're getting improved significantly. But, you know, how do you take that platform and start to do things like better energy efficiency, renewable energy, electric vehicles? So we started building out the policies and, and to shape that. That one of the things we were doing is a lot of public-private partnerships around long-term energy purchases called power purchase agreements. That's important because that's what Walmart does. That's what Target does. That's what Amazon do when they buy buy energy. What is a power purchase agreement? Basically, a power purchase agreement means um, you own a building, right? You don't you don't want to own and manage solar panels. Most people don't have the ability to do it. And you shouldn't, right? So a developer comes in and says, "I'll put these in your roof, or I'll put them across the street." You, know, you can you buy the power at a discount rate from what you're paying from your local utility, and you commit to doing it for 20 years. So I'm creating a guaranteed market for you over two decades. Exactly. Then I can go get a finance. That's sort of how the solar market is boomed. Um, and so I got to, I began to understand that space. Launched a task force of the army to do more of it. That led to the White House job, where I had a similar role, but across all of the federal footprint. So, so instead of just army barracks getting solar panels on their roof and reduce energy pricing, you now have healthcare clinics also getting it on their roof. Healthcare clinics, data centers, um, you know, GSA, Government Service Administration facilities. I mean, think about the, the so sustainability really refers to environmental sustainability and shifting to renewable energies more than. Uh, any other form of sustainability? Um, no, I mean, I think that's where I've gone with it because that's yeah. sort of the, my path. But we also did things like, uh, you know, the, the federal government's the largest consumer of electronics. Hmm. So what do you do post the life of those electronics? How do you get rid of, you know, how do you, it used to be that they would take your computer and it would get shipped overseas. In the world? In the world. Well, I'm not, yeah, I imagine the world, but definitely in the U.S. So they take your, take the, your, your computer, ship it overseas, some, you know, Probably child labor would smash it up with a hammer, and they take the, you know. So the, the government said that doesn't make sense. So let's let's put in place a recycling program post the use of these, mm-hmm. and make sure when you build an iPhone, it can be taken apart, right? And so they, they start putting those standards in place, and then as a result, you had major technology companies. Are these federal regulations or executive orders or not? So it's a blend of the three. Uh, some are laws. The third being statute. Yeah, some are laws that is, that establish it. Some are executive orders. Some are uh, mandates. So, like for instance, you could put in place um, federal purchasing mandates, right? That require recycled paper, right? If, you, if you're going to, you know, let's let's use recycled paper when we buy paper, mm-hmm. right? And that kind of thing really reverberates because the federal government buys a lot of paper, mm-hmm. right? um, or you know, if they're going to buy electric vehicles, we did a lot of electric vehicles. You know, how do you do that across uh, the larger federal fleet? You know what's striking me right now? 
uh, America is in increasingly divided on a partisan basis. And there are certain things that are associated with certain parties. So, for instance, for better or worse, on a national level, maybe not on a local or state level, there's a general association with the environmental movement with the Democratic Party and liberalism, and there's generally an association with uh, the military with the Republican Party and more conservative politics. Right. Of course, you have John Kerry, who was a Democrat in the military, and, and, and of course there's a, a, a million exceptions, but you are doing something that's traditionally seen on the left in terms of environmental stuff, but you're also coming from what is traditionally seen as the right in the military. Can you explain that? And yeah. Does that ever offer difficulties or new insights? Or how does, what's going on there? That, so that's a good question. You know, I actually just wrote, recently wrote an, a paper about uh, how the Defense Department is leading by example on clean energy, right? And there's multiple reasons to do that. One, uh, look, they're doing it to affect their bottom line. They've got a $4 billion electricity bill. So, you know, let's, how do you save money? How do you line up? How do you do similar things to what corporate America is doing, right, in the way they manage their infrastructure? Um, one of the... So I'll answer this question, but one, let me give you an example. One of the things we did at the White House uh, under President Obama's leadership, we had this executive order called Leading by Example. And in there, we committed to doing $4 billion of these things called energy service, energy savings performance contracts managed by a company called ESCOs. Right? What does this mean? That means the federal government doesn't have the capital to go into their buildings and do energy efficiency upgrades, better windows, HVAC systems, whatever. So they contract using their energy bill to a larger company uh, like a Johnson Controls or a Honeywell or a Snyder who, who has the industry expertise. And that company goes in, do these massive retrofits, could include renewables, could include energy efficiency, could include better lighting, better windows. And then it's paid for off the electricity bill over the course of 15 or 20 years. Right? It's a great way for the government to get improvements, not put upfront capital in place hugely supported on both sides of the aisle. We got a letter from Congress signed by 154 House members, both Senate and, uh, I'm sorry, both Republicans and Democrats, mostly Republicans actually, thanking the president on this initiative. Mm -hmm. how, many, how many letters the president got, President Obama got from the Republicans on anything? Or so they saved money. Save, they, save the, they reduced the... Tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. From the federal budget. The federal budget. Through this green initiative. Yep. So why would you not associate their if the Republican Party claims to own fiscal responsibility? Yeah. Why do they not embrace climate change as a real thing and a shift to renewables as something that's beneficial for within and and, and uh, I guess fitting within their own ideology? Yeah, actually, you're going to see at two o'clock today a whole plethora of Fortune 100s, cities and states roll out a recommitment to Paris mm -hmm. uh, called "We Are Still In" and. They're, they're, by Michael Bloomberg. Uh, Bloomberg is part of that, yeah, absolutely. There's a group called Series 2, which is another part of it, that basically helps quarterback on these conversations. But look, Google is doing it again. There is the bottom line of being green, but they're also doing it to save money, right? And so is GE, and so is Walmart. And they will continue to do this without the administration has to say. What is, I agree with you. What's mind-boggling is that the certain special interests have taken hold of the other side and in implemented trying to implement things that help drive specific for people that believe in free markets they're totally effing with the markets mm -hmm. right? like, we want to drive coal we want to drive 
uh, you know, oil, not we want to let the markets actually run, mm-hmm. and they're they're, conti- they're they're significantly hampering the markets. Now, Republicans also are in favor of improving security. That often is something that you'll find in their platforms. Yeah. Now, is there any correlation between fuel and security, especially given your expertise in the Middle East? Significant correlations, and the fact that not only. So let's step back and what, what are we trying to address? I'd like you to just address, address like energy independence. Yeah. So what are we trying to address with energy independence, right? What are we trying to really get after with energy security? It's a, you know, you hear people talk about all of the above, which is sort of meaning we need to touch on all pieces of it. We can't be an oil-dependent country. You know, oil doesn't actually really create electricity for the most part, right? Oil produces power, which we use to transport ourselves, right, or to drive major industries. There is a lot of electricity that comes from oil. Don't get me wrong. But it's a sliver of the of the electricity market. But you know where this comes into place is then you've got electricity, right? And that can be created for a long time. It was a 1950s national grid, right? Just powered by central plants, mostly powered on coal, that would take the electricity, send it through the wires to your house, right? What? The real ar- energy argument here is not only the source of it, right, which is uh, obviously has great environmental impacts when you're talking about coal, um, but there's ways to actually now diversify how that's even moved. So if you had solar panels in your roof, or if, if look at Apple's new headquarters being built in. So instead of there being centralized power with a distributive grid model, you now have a distributed power generation model. Exactly. Using multiple sources. Right. So looking at your, your phone here on the desk, right? Think about the old telephone, right? It was basically a series of wires connected to someone who would pick up the thing and it would ring you in California, right? Now people basically carry around a computer in their pocket that's connected to a distributed network. It's more secure, right? They can knock out one tower, but they're not going to knock out the whole country. And so, matter of fact, you're going to see a, a report coming out of DOE this week where Secretary Perry, driven by people that used to work in the Coke industry network of think tanks, are putting out a paper arguing that the the complete opposite of reality, which is that real national security comes from baseload generating power plants from coal that distribute the power over these wires. That's total BS, and that's a 1950s Do they stand to benefit financially from that sort of policy? And I think that's where... So I guess we're talking about so, the public interest and public interest podcast. So yeah. I guess right there, it seems like there is a conflict between one's personal financial interests and the public interest. Well, in this administration, there's a lot of those conflicts. I think, but I would argue that the, the person probably writing that policy may not personally benefit the person in Secretary Perry's office. They're arguing it from an industry perspective that has. Look, there's a lot of special interests in this town that get a lot of positive things from what they do. But... As a consumer, as a citizen, right, one of the great things that happened in Florida recently is Florida just finally passed some major solar bills, so supporting of solar bills. And the argument worked down there wasn't about climate change. It wasn't about uh, going green. It was about personal choice. In a Republican state, for the most part, with a lot of sun, they should have had plenty of solar. But when they went in, when forces went in, like uh, solar... Um, Vote Solar, for instance, went in and made an argument that said, you should be able to choose what kind of electricity you have. That makes sense to people, right? And they were able to overcome the the status quo of the utilities, who are usually the the people that fight this the most, um, to get in place solar laws that now give people choice. 
to choose solar, to choose using the utility, to whatever they want, mm -hmm. right? So why are supporters of the current administration, and why is the current administration itself so, so interested in withdrawing from the Paris Agreements and opposing any forcible changes to man-made climate change if, if staying in the agreement and reducing our carbon footprint would actually enhance personal choice and create freer markets, which are associated with the Republican Party? Yeah, so the, the arguments the president made when pulling out last week were actually false, right? The, the idea of this is about jobs is, is total BS. One in every 50 jobs created last year in the United States was a solar energy job. And how many, and, and, and what is the ratio of jobs created by coal and gas? Do you know that? More people work in car washes today than in the coal, coal industry. More people work at Arby's than in the coal industry. Yeah. Right? So if it's is not it about- Is it fair to say that more jobs are created in the solar industry than in the coal industry? More jobs are created in the solar industry than all the fossil fuel industries combined last year. And is there so any the reason? So, so, let me come back. To this. So, Paris, but but also we have to be true about what Paris says. Paris may not affect that, right? Because we are still going to be creating clean energy here at home. There are a lot of other policies he can go after that could affect that domestically. But Paris is about an international governance structure to drive towards greenhouse gases. The the two forces that um, I think most affected Paris, right? Remember what what that achieves. Um, one was Scott Pruitt, and the people behind Scott Pruitt. In the, the, for our listeners who don't know, who is it, Scott Pruitt is the EPA administrator, former Adjutant General of Oklahoma. Uh, it sued EPA, uh, I think, over a dozen times. A huge climate change denier. And if you look at where he gets his money from, it's oil, oil and gas companies. Would he call himself a climate change denier or a man-made climate change denier? He would today, now that he's had to testify about it in front of the Senate say that he's he he doesn't think that the, the science bears uh, bears proof yet right and he's going to say mostly man man made climate change now if you look at his actions he's he's sure and I, I'm, I'd argue he may not be a climate change denier he's supporting he special interests there may be climate change but man didn't create it forget why he doesn't he's supporting special interests that are benefiting from keeping us out right um, which would be the status quo, oil and gas industries, utilities. Now, the other piece of this, and I don't think this should be uh, looked at lightly, there is a worldview in this administration, lived in the world of the sea bannons, right, that we should not be leaders internationally. And we're backing away from those, that leadership, giving up on Paris. And what are the con what's the consequence of that? I think... Uh, we saw this post the invasion of Iraq. You, you know, this isn't the first time we're isolationists. And, but right before World War One, Woodrow yeah. Wilson won re-election on keeping America out of the First World War. Yeah. This isn't the first time we've been nativist, we've been xenophobic, we've wanted to stay out of world affairs, just take care of our own. Why? What is the consequence of ceding this world leadership, as you say? So, take one example. Take, take NATO, for instance. And the president's undercutting NATO left and right today. Who just said last week that... For our listeners, NATO is a North Atlantic yeah. Treaty Organization. Which is basically... that This is designed post-World War II. Well, post-World War II, the world was in shambles. President Truman, uh, secretaries, uh, sec uh, George Marshall, and, and other key giants in history created this new world order. Fulbright. Right? Yeah, Fulbright. There's so many that... But that, 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 that grand strategy of a new world order 
which you know created for us what today is the European Union, connected to the United States. For the most part, we're general allies. Think about what the European Union has done is created these. If you haven't traveled to Europe, you know you could travel from New York to Illinois and be in a whole another country. You were to Ohio, a whole another country, different cultures, different language. But now they have a joint economy. They're shared. Go back 50 years, they were going to war every two, every couple of years. And you're saying sense. that the European so, Union instability is partially a result of American leadership? 100% result, result of this governance infrastructure that was put in place. So we're looking right? at a more instable world if we see leadership so, in China. Not only that, what it also did was push back against the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union could move into – Russia could move and create the Soviet Union into these in, – into Czechoslovakia and, and, and other countries – without much of a pushback, but once they tried to move into Poland and Germany, they ran into a wall, right? That wall continued to expand and push back and destabilize the Soviet Union. Soviet Union fell. Now Russia is back at the table again today. Putin just last week said he doesn't even know why NATO needs to exist anymore. Of course he doesn't want it to exist because he wants it to cede power and he can continue to be uh, a global leader from his position. What does that mean? That means that, uh, that there's not only more... Tri- opportunity for things like war, that means that from an economics perspective, right, they're pumping out oil and gas and running lines into Europe, powering European homes. It's a great it's a great thing for Russia, right? It's not a great thing for the Europeans, probably not a great thing for, for the US. You could take that same uh, dynamic, flip it to, to Asia and look at China. Right? China is a behemoth in Asia, doing really interesting things with their economy. Look, they may not be be Russia by any means, but they are the biggest player in the space. The Japanese, the Koreans, the the uh, whoever else is in the community in the area, they're they're, they're absolutely uh, uh, minimal compared to the size of China. Well, the U.S. President Obama specifically pivoted to Asia to try to support those economies, support those folks, keep democratic values in place, and uh, the more we see that the more strength we give to these folks that don't share the same values that we have. So, John, I'd like to talk about those democratic values as we wrap up this podcast episode. Um, You ran as a candidate for Congress. You've been involved in the White House, in the military. You've worked with people on the left and people on the right. You're now working in finance and within the renewable energy sector. A lot of different areas of the economy, of society, of politics that you've served. So I'd like to ask you to speak to our listeners, suppose, speak to these Americans, Americans, some of whom supported Barack Obama, some of whom are currently supporting the current uh, administration's efforts to pull out of of Paris. Why is it important, regardless of what your political philosophy is, why have you been so compelled to try to advance the public interest in these many different ways? And what do you hope will be the impact of all your efforts? What have you given and why have you given it? Yeah. So... Obviously, we talked about my time in the military, and I felt like, I, you know, from that experience, I was not only called to serve, I had an amazing experience serving and saw the best of, of my friends and, fam- you know, friends and family go to war, come home, get involved in our community. And I, I know growing up in a place like Buffalo, New York, what the best of America could bring, right? And I was always been driven by trying to continue to bring uh, the best of America out. Right, so why things like clean energy? Because clean energy not only provides for our national security, provides for our economic security, it provides people opportunities, and provides for my children's future. Right? If I look at national security, it's obviously it's pretty obviously what, what that can bring to the table. 
but I also recognize that we're not here alone, right? And I have lived and, and traveled overseas enough to know that, you know, there's a lot that we can learn from overseas. There's a lot of stuff that we can help engage overseas. You know, we can't just shut down, especially in the 21st century, uh, in this interconnected world and expect to, to see a place thrive, right? Um, so, you know, if, if I was in, you know, I, I was lucky. I've been able to been in a position to follow my passions, um, and I've also been very entrepreneurial in creating things like Clean Capital. Um, there are days that it's really hard, and days that it's, you know you doing a startup, you can see the end of your your uh, your but your bank account some days, maybe some months. Um, and so you know, but if you're driven and able to, if you're doing the right thing, you know the the support will be there, and, and we're seeing this with Clean Capital Zone, right? It's growing, but um, you know, I also go to work every day not just driven by the bottom line, but by what's doing best. And, you know, I'm lucky to have uh, sort of double bottom line in, in everything I'm doing today. And that has been John Powers, co-founder of Clean Capital, former managing director at Bloom Energy, uh, worked in the White House on uh, sustainability, uh, worked for the U.S. Army as special advisor to assistant secretary, uh, CEO, COO at Truman National Security Project, ran for Congress in New York, Captain in the Army, taught in elementary and high school, created a nonprofit to relief to relieve uh, kids in, in war zones, and he speaks about this concept that he refers to as a double bottom line. So, regardless of whether he's working in the security industry or he's working in in, in in clean energy, you know, the thing that John does is he's trying to, and we've re- returned to this theme many times throughout many the public interest podcast episodes of doing well and doing good simultaneously. He has uh, sought to enhance personal choice and and expand free markets, but he's also sought to kind of shift the American economy away from carbon-based fuels, which not only potentially fund terrorism indirectly in the Middle East, uh, and and so he's interested in making us more uh, energy independent, but he's also uh, interested in reconceptualizing uh, how structures even work, how we distribute electricity, how we participate in democracy, uh, how we conceptualize national security. And these many different, uh, th- this different ideas are connected by this concept of what he calls uh, an interconnected world. He refers to the communities in which he's lived, whether it's in western New York, whether it's a national community in the United States where he served in, in the White House, or whether it's a community of humanity around the globe ultimately have to do the right thing and consider the impact of your actions on others. And uh, ultimately, for John, advancing the public interest is about making sure that the community is in better place today than it was yesterday. John, thanks for joining us Thanks today. for having me. Appreciate it. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes, Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, You're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.